December 17th, 1903. Remember that date? The first day that man ever flew on purpose. And uh, Wilburn Overwright in North Carolina down there, out there in Kill Devil Hills, flew for 120 feet for the very first time. Man had never done that before. What an incredible accomplishment. They've been working on it for years. Everybody knew them. They came from a bicycle shop background, but um, they've been working on trying to do that for years. God gave them that vision, and they wanted to fly. They finally did that day. And so their parents lived up north, and they were planning on going home for Christmas. So they decided to send a telegram to their parents, and they shot a telegram that says, we flew 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. And so the sister went down to the Western Union there and got the telegram, and she was so excited about that, she ran over to the newspaper, gave it to the editor of the newspaper. Look at I just got this from my brothers down in North Carolina. And he looked at the email there, the, the text, the Western Union telegram. He said, oh, that's great. They'll be home for Christmas. I mean, miss it totally. Man flies for the first, first time, and on that telegram what they picked out was the fact that, oh, good, the boys will be home for Christmas. Well, that was good, but that wasn't the point of that message. They missed it completely. You know, it's sad today. It's very easy for you and I also to miss the message of Christmas. We talked about last week, assuming sometimes we know the story. I've heard the story a million times, but what is it about the story that's new this year to me? I want to tell you why God's Word is different every time you read it. Why? Because you're a different person every time you read it. It might have been last week, but you know what? You're a week older. might have been months, and in the case of the Christmas story, it's been a year since you've read it. How many things have happened to you this year between this year and last year that's changed you? I'm no longer the same person I used to be. God desires for you and I to be different every single day. Get up because it's a new opportunity to learn more about Him and to grow in Him. I want uh, to share with you my heart this Christmas that all of us, beginning with your pastor here, would have a full take of the Christmas story. We'd understand truly what it's all about. We might see a fresh, new, rich insight into this Christmas story. God's Word lives. There's always something different to see in God's Word as He reveals Himself to us. I'm praying that your eyes and my eyes might be enlightened this year and we see things. And this sermon today and this message today out of God's Word, Matthew 1, is one of those sermons I believe that you can see some new things and might, might be able to defend your position on the, on, the, on the birth of Jesus Christ, might be able to enlighten you in a way where I realize what I truly have here in Jesus Christ, what He did when He came to this earth. But I want you to see this this morning. If you'd turn with me this morning to the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. As you find your way to Matthew 1, 1, stand with me this morning, if you will, out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. Beginning with verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zariah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who was, had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. And Rehoboam begot uh, Abiah. Abiah begot Asa. And Asa begot Jehoshaphat. 
Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot uh, Jeconachai and his brothers about the time they were carried away into Babylon. And after that, they were brought to Babylon, and Jeconachai begot uh, Shethel, and Shethel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abidu, and Abidu begot Elakim, and Elakim begot Azor. Azar begat Zodak, and Zodak begat Achim. Achim begat Uliad. Uliad begat Elazar. Elazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. Verse 16, it says, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. It tells the story here. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear child, bear son, and they shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord said, and took him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her first son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, I pray that you speak to our hearts today, Father, that we'd see things we've never seen before. Father, but maybe understand things that you would enlighten to us this day. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Matthew was written by a Jew. It was written to Jews that had become Christians, but it was also written to Jews that were not Christians yet. He was writing to them that they might understand Jesus Christ, understand that God is now with us. It's absolutely vital when we look at a lineage or genealogy for the Jewish faith at that time, they needed to see King David and Abraham in that lineage. King David, the greatest king that ever lived. Abraham, the first Hebrew. You know what the word Hebrew means in Greek, in in Hebrew? It means from the other side. Abraham was the first person to ever cross the Euphrates River. And since he was the first man to cross over. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ here. In this Bible, and I'm going to share some things you may not know or may know, but I want you to understand here a couple of things that are phenomenal devotionary points about the coming of Jesus Christ. This is just kind of a background right now, but there's two generations of Jesus Christ depicted in the New Testament. One of them is found right here where we just read it in Matthew, and the other one's in Luke 3. In Matthew, we see the genealogy of Joseph. In Luke, we see the genealogy of Mary. In Matthew, in the genealogy of Joseph, the genealogist begins back at the very beginning and brings us forward to Jesus Christ. Starts all the way back with Abraham and comes forward. All those generations, all those wonderful Hebrew names I just read for you. Don't make me do it again. I'm just kidding. Mary 
Her genealogy, which is found in Luke 3, begins with Jesus and goes back all the way to Adam. And so there are two genealogies here, one Joseph's and one Mary's. I want you to hear this point this morning, though. There's no other genealogies found in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, just these two. Why? Because the only birth that counts after the coming of Jesus Christ is your rebirth, your second birth. Okay, we're all born. If we're in this earth, we've all been born, that physical born birth. But God has said and he's given us a second birth in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice here, these are some, I think, some interesting points that will kind of help us understand why this genealogy is here, but also help us understand what Matthew is trying to relate to his audience, to the Jews. Begat, as you notice, as I said it 39 times, it's used 39 times, and it's speaking to the fact that uh, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. What that meant is that he sired him. It means that he had a sexual relationship, and a child came from that sexual relationship. That's what begat means. But look back to Matthew 1, verse 16 for just a second. Matthew changes everything, changes the entire vocabulary here. Joseph had no part in Mary's conception. So he says this. He doesn't say that Joseph begat Jesus. It says this. He said, Jacob begat Joseph, that's his dad, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus is the Christ. I don't know if you ever picked that out before looking at that genealogy. I've never looked at that genealogy a whole lot. But think about this for just a second. Matthew wanted to make sure that he established it right up front here in the genealogy that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus Christ. Joseph had the privilege of being a stepfather. God was the father of Jesus Christ. There's someone else here that I believe is of great devotional truth. Matthew right here names four ladies in that genealogy. You may have saw them as we went through there. There's two Gentiles listed here in this genealogy. Rahab, a Canaanite, and Ruth, a Moabite. Then there's two Jews that are mentioned there in the genealogy. Tamar and um, Bathsheba. The ladies never had or never will have anything to do with the genealogy of a Jewish person. It's just the men. So why did, why did Matthew feel obligated to put these four ladies into there? Especially this. Three of those women were morally stained. They'd been involved in sexual impropriety and sexual impurity. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba all had relationships sexually outside their marriage. Ruth was pure, but listen to this. She came from the line of Moab. Moab, you remember where he came from? He was the offspring from Lot, having an incestual relationship with his daughter. Why are these names here? Jesus Christ has always been the friend of a sinner. He always has. That's why he came. Jesus Christ is not embarrassed about his family line either. He loves all of us no matter where we've been. He loves each and every one of us. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. You know, I think a lot of us get involved with ancestry. My, my family's done it before. I had an uncle that did it, and my brothers knew it, and kind of tracing back our loved ones and people in our background. And it's kind of exciting to see who you're related to, especially if there's something famous pops up, you know, 400 years ago. Really? I'm related to him? I always thought I was. I want to share with you this morning, though, that's, that's fun to do, and it's kind of exciting to see. But the legacy you leave is so much more important than your ancestry behind you. A lot of people kind of feel like they came from kind of a not that glorious of an ancestry. I didn't get the parents I wish I'd had. I didn't have grandparents. And my whole family tree is just kind of like this shrinking, rotten tree I grew. And so sometimes we feel like that kind of defines who we are. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know who defines who we are? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ defines who we are and I. 
and how I live my life based on Him. I want to share a thought here. Two men that lived their lives. One lived his life for God. The other one didn't. You heard of Jonathan Edwards, lived back in the 1700s, great pastor. A study was done, though, at the turn of the 20th century by a pastor by the name of A.E. Winship. He wanted to study the descendants of Jonathan Edwards, and then subsequently found out about a fellow by the name of Max Jukes, so he, discovered, he did his family legacy as well. But uh, he determined, he found out that Jonathan Edwards, obviously, was a Puritan pastor, a great pastor, renowned today. Some of his sermons are still repeated today. Had a wife by the name of Sarah, and, uh, Sarah, and they had 11 children. And coming from that family, I want you to hear what came out of his family. One United States vice president, three United States senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, and listen to this. I love this. 100 missionaries came out of John. That they know about, that he could trace back 100 missionaries. Max Jukes, another fellow. And how they find out about Max Jukes? This is kind of profound. In the early 1800s, they did a study of the New York system, penal system, all the jails in New York City. And they wanted to trace back the family trees. They're trying to do some scientific work here and some psychological work, trying to figure out why are these guys all in jail. They, they surveyed all the, all the guys and they got the family trees of all the guys that were incarcerated at that point, and they found 42 incarcerated prisoners in the New York system, penal system, that were all related to Max Jukes. Figure that out. Max Jukes was a profound and, and authenticated atheist. He married a wife that was not a Christian. He also lived about as ungodly a life as you could imagine, in and out of jail himself. But coming, remember the, the life that Jonathan Edwards lived? Remember his, uh, his ancestors that followed his life? Now listen to Max Jukes. Coming out of Max Jukes' life, there were seven murderers, 60 thieves, 130 convicts, people that spent time in jail, 50 known prostitutes, and 310 people that lived as paupers and were supported by those around them. We have an incredible opportunity, the way we live today, to set our genealogy and to set our ancestors to come, to set those, that are our predecessors and our, our future legacy in a solid way by anchoring that anchor in Jesus Christ and professing the gospel of Jesus Christ and see these people grow and learn in their ancestors. I know break our hearts to see our kids move in the wrong direction, and it's never too late to get that family tree back on track and um, move in a, in a positive direction. Think about Jesus Christ's birth for just a second. It was an unprecedented birth. Look at verse 20 in Matthew 1. It says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take your wife, uh, take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He was telling them the Holy Spirit conceived your baby. What an incredible announcement. God was coming to the world as a baby, a first-class supernatural announcement here. Gave Joseph the opportunity to be something, part of something godly and supernatural. What an incredible announcement there for him. Look at verse 23. He says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You know, since very, almost the very beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, they have debated and issued and argued about the fact of that being a virgin birth. It's possible, you know, in our finite minds, we can't wrap our arms around that. How could it be a, a, a Holy Spirit conception? They've tried to point to Scripture and point different ways about what it means, and I want to share several of those with you to show you how the Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture absolutely shows us that it was a virgin birth. 
The Old Testament prophecy comes out of Isaiah 7:14, exactly the same thing we just read in Matthew 23, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 23. I want you to look at verse 23 for just a second. He says, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child." You know the the preceding word, the virgin, the. This is profound and this is huge. The authority of God. The virgin. It doesn't say a virgin. It doesn't say any virgin. It doesn't say some virgin. It says the virgin. What does that mean? It means the virgin that God picked to be Jesus' mother. The. The virgin. Authoritative right there. The dialogue, the, 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 the scripture there, the interpretation here, the translation. The virgin. Over and over. It says it both places, both in Isaiah 7.14, but also in, in uh, Matthew 1.23. The virgin. Another argument they give, though. They want to say, well, the Hebrew word that they use in Isaiah does not mean virgin. The Hebrew word is alman, A-L-M-A-N, alman. It actually means young girl, young woman. There's six other places, listen very carefully, there's six other places in the, whole, in the Old Testament where you use that word alman, that Hebrew word that means young woman or young lady. Listen very carefully. Not one of those places does it, does, does, does it disqualify the act of being a virgin. Nowhere does it say the person wasn't pure. Nowhere does it say that she'd had sexual relations with me. So every one of those words, it could be the word virgin as well. There's another word called belmuth that used for the actual word in Hebrew that means virgin. But a lot of people want to dispel the fact that she was a virgin because they didn't use the exact word for virgin. Well, that doesn't matter. Because you know what happens when Matthew gets ready to write his scripture and quote Isaiah? You know what he does? He's writing in the Greek now, no longer the Hebrew. You know what he used in the Greek? The actual word for virgin. He says, and the, the, behold, the virgin shall be with child. So you see right here, it disputes those arguments. That's probably the biggest argument they have about it being a virgin. They, use the, they say they used the wrong word in the Old Testament. If they meant virgin, they would have used the other word. But Matthew uses the right word. But more than that, think about this. this the matter is settled when Matthew quotes this text. Remember Isaiah identified the virgin birth as a sign of the Messiah. It wouldn't be a sign if they'd said all the way back some 700 years before Jesus came, hey, there's going to be a woman that has a baby. That'll be your sign. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, year Jesus was born, probably a thousand kids were born to a young woman at that, in that time period. It wouldn't be a sign. But he also says the virgin, very specifically the virgin he's talking about here. But let me tell you the final proof for you and I. The final proof, what the, the sign that Isaiah talked about, the sign that Matthew talked about, you know what? It came true. He was, Jesus was, born of a virgin in that stall. Jesus Christ, God, came in the form of a baby to a virgin in a manger. I don't know if you've ever pondered this thought as you read your Bible, but God made human beings five different ways. Five different ways God makes human beings. First of all was that direct creation. God created Adam out of nothing. The second was a design construction. What, what did God make Eve out of? Adam's rib, right? The next thing was dynamic conception. That's the way we do it today. I love the fact they use dynamic. It's pretty cool. Cain, Abel, and Seth, you and I. The fourth way is divine communication. Remember how old Abraham was and Sarah? Way past the age of normal childbearing age. God gave life, created life in bodies that were far beyond the capability of doing that. 
And finally, the most exciting, wonderful way that God designed life, by divine conception, Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ as a virgin. A number of years ago, Larry King was on somebody else's show. And they were interviewing Larry King. You know, you know, profound fellow and pretty well-known around the world. And so they <clears throat> wanted to ask him a couple of significant questions. They asked Larry King, if you could interview anybody throughout all of history, who would you like to interview? Who? Anybody you could interview, ever interview me? He said, uh, I'd like to interview Jesus Christ. Kind of threw the interviewer for a little bit of a loop. But, uh, well, what would you ask Jesus Christ if you could? He said, I would ask him if he was really born from a virgin. And the interviewer says, well, why would you do that? Larry King says, because his answer to that question will answer every single question I have about life. Larry King was Jewish. Amy and I remember watching him a number of times on TV and saying he's talking to some Christian person. was usually the reason we'd watch him. But we kept saying, you know, he's very close to becoming a Christian, I think, because he's asking all the right questions. And some of them give him the right answers, some of them didn't, unfortunately. But we kept thinking, you know, he said, but I want to think about this. If I could get the answer to the question about the virgin birth, it would answer everything in my life. You know what that does in our life? It answers everything in our life as well. Why? Because because of that virgin birth, we knew that he was God come to earth, incarnate as a man. 100% man, 100% God. Had an incredible opportunity to see these things. Watch these little kids up here and see the the birth of our kids, and see all the things that God has done to realize that God loved us so very much that he sent his son into this world. There's a lot of people out there testing the different kinds of religions. All the gods are the same, all these things. No, they're not. Our God lives. You know, Jesus was born in an incredible way, but he also was an incredible baby. How incredible was this baby? Listen to just a couple of these thoughts very quickly here this morning. And ponder some of these thoughts, maybe if you will. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born whose existence did not begin with his conception. Jesus Christ is the only baby ever born who is older than his mother and the same age as his dad. Figure that one out. Jesus Christ is the only baby ever born that was older than his mother and as old as his dad. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born who chose his own birth. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born who chose his own parents. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born who did not have a human father, had a human stepfather. Jesus Christ is the only baby ever born without, without sin. Jesus Christ is the only baby that was more than human. And this is profound. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born for the express purpose of dying. You and I all die someday, but Jesus Christ was born, came to this world expressly to die for you and I. That was his purpose in life. The baby in that womb, the baby in that manger changed our life. I want to look at God's amazing grace for just a second. And there's two verses here that just overwhelm us with God's grace. Verse 21 again. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came into this earth to die. 
that we might be saved from our sins, to die that we might be forgiven of our sins, to die that we might have eternal life. I don't know if you've had this experience yet. We have. Unfortunately, our kids went to a Christian college. These kids go off to college and some high schools right now. If they take a world religion class, you know what that professor is probably going to tell them? professor is probably going to tell them that uh, all gods are the same. And all religions are basically the same, too. We all go to heaven someday and go to heaven. You know, well, they're almost right. That professor is almost right when he says that. Most religions are all mostly essentially the same, except for one. There's one that's not the same. You look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Paganism, New Age, human secularism, all those world religions out there, all those religions that have been around, some of them longer than Christianity. Every religion requires you to work to get to God. It does. You've got to work hard. And, and some of them would attest that you can become a God if you work hard enough, you do enough good things. Christianity does not attest that. Jesus Christ came to, came to this earth as a baby in a manger by the grace of God. He gave us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, as I mentioned a moment ago, specifically to die upon that cross for you and I. He came that you and I might have life. There is no God but one God. His name is Jehovah, and he has a son named Jesus Christ. We don't have to work to get to God. You know what? All we need to do is love him. All we need to do is accept him. We have that relationship. What we need to spend our time working on once we accept Christ is have that relationship. Work on increasing that relationship and work on building that relationship. You know, the, the Bible reveals truth. The truth is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that you and I might have life. It's all about that relationship. Let me give you another thought this morning. Imagine it was summertime. It feels like it outside today, but imagine it was summertime and you had an opportunity to go to the beach. You went down to Virginia Beach down here, one of your favorite beaches, Nags Head, wherever it might be, went swimming. And you missed the little flag that was flying out there that was a black flag that meant that there was undertoes. The surf was dangerous, but you thought, you know, I'm going to go in there. I didn't see the signs. I'm out swimming away. All of a sudden, you get caught in that undertow, pulling you out in the ocean, and you realize unless something happens right now, I'm fucking drowning. You're screaming as hard as you can. And look back at the beach there. Here's all these guys from all these different religions. The Hindu guys there, the Buddha guys there, and all tell us, <clears throat> hey, let me teach you how to swim. Let me teach you about my religion. Let me teach you these things and all these things. I want to teach you how to, how to save yourself and all these things. You know what you need when you're out there drowning? You need somebody to come get you. Somebody to come save you, right? I swim. It's too late for that. If I'm caught in that undertow, it's too late to learn how to swim. But listen, that might not save me anyway. I need somebody to come out and save me, to pluck me out of this ocean, to pluck me out of this tempest storm I'm involved in right now. I need Jesus Christ to come save me. There's too many people walking around out there that are confused about the whole essence of faith. Why would I put my faith in somebody that's dead? Why would I put my faith in somebody that says I need to do all these things to be accepted into my faith? You know what you need to do to be a Christian? Surrender. Open your heart and say, I want to accept Jesus Christ in my heart today. I don't need to work at it. don't need to study for it. I just need to say, I want Jesus in my life today. That's what happened on that Christian morning when God told us, Matthew passed it on to us, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. There's a major issue that stands in our way sometimes. We can kind of get arrogant a little bit, kind of get too prideful. 
And why do I need saving? That comes questions comes in front of some people's minds. Why do I need saving? The Bible tells us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we're going to die. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then God tells us in Romans 10.9 how we can have that, that faith. If I believe in my heart the Lord Jesus Christ, and if I confess in my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in my heart that he rose from the dead, I can be saved. God tells us a plan. It's not a matter of having to work for it. It's a matter of just opening up my heart and saying, I want him here. I want to confess my heart to him and realize that I need to be saved. You know why the Israelites missed Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he walked in front of them, when he walked among them? They realized that I'm the chosen generation. You know, we're the chosen generation. God says it right here. Abraham told us, Moses told us, and all the Old Testament prophets told us, we're the chosen generation. I don't need to be saved because I'm already there. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm already there. I don't need to be saved. They missed it totally. There was a few that got it because they got up close and personal with Jesus and actually let down their guard gate, took off their pride and said, hey, there's something about this Jesus guy and I want him. People today, you know why we miss Jesus Christ? Well, I'm an American. You know, I have all these things and I'm doing just fine. Why do I need to be saved? I'm amazed when I do funerals about how many people don't actually sit there and ponder their own mortality. I even say it. I don't miss too many services where I don't say, hey, one day I'm going to be laying in a state like this. You're going to be laying in a state like this. I tell them the possibilities you win in the lottery is one in 14 million. Win the lottery. Let me tell you what the possibilities of you dying are. It's one in one. We're all going to die someday. Have you thought about where we end eternity? Jesus Christ came to earth that we might understand that we have an opportunity to spend eternity with him. We all live forever. Every one of us is eternal. But we have a choice where we're going to live. We're either going to live with God in heaven or we're going to live with the enemy, the devil, down in hell. I'm here to tell you, in fact, maybe I'll preach it again one of these days. I did it years ago. You don't want to go to hell. Ten, ten reasons you don't want to go to hell. I'm here to tell you. Living with God is where it's at. By God's grace, he came to save us. Let me show you the second gift he gave us by God's grace. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin came to be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, it does not have the translation there that says it means God with us. It just says his name should be called Emmanuel. If he didn't put God with us here too, it might be a little struggle for you and I to figure this out. Unless we want to look back to Greek. It, could, it might be Scott or Pete or George or whatever this name here. What difference does that make? The difference because what his name is Emmanuel means is God with us. When God came to earth, he was never going to leave us again. Jesus died upon that cross, went back to heaven, but what did he leave behind us? He told his followers, his apostles and disciples, hey, wait here in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit to you. Receive the power. When Jesus Christ came to earth, from that moment on, we had access to the holy power through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, by accepting Jesus in us. Jesus in us. You know what it's saying here? He says, now and forever, God is actually and literally and personally with each one of us. Never going to leave us nor forsake us. We have an incredible gift here. He came to save us that we might live forever, but he also came to give us life. And how did he give us life? He came to live with us, that God's going to be with us forever. Let me conclude right now with this little story. November 4th, 1979, Radical students and instigators took over the American embassy in Iran. They held it for more than a year. 
52 hostages. One of those hostages was a, lady, a precious lady by the name of Catherine Cobb. For whatever reason, they put several of the hostages in the, uh, in the individual security, isolated prison. So she stayed isolated from the rest of the folks for almost eight months. After eight months, though, for whatever reason, they brought her out, and they wanted to do a television interview with her about how she was treated. And so this television broadcast was picked up internationally. The whole world was watching as he interviewed one of these hostages, Catherine Cobb. They asked her, how were you able to stay so strong through all these times and survive? In a very feeble, weak voice, she said, I had my Bible and I've been reading my Bible. God's word strengthened me. Then she goes on and she says, I grew up in a Christian home. I have great faith in God and I know that he is there. And then very suddenly and very silently, she starts singing a little song. She started singing away in the manger. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee this day. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. She finished that song and all the reporters that were fun with her singing were spellbound. And then she said one more thing that was truly illuminating in who she was. She said, I've not only survived here, but I even feel good about it because I know where God is. God is with me. As Christians, God is with us. Do you feel him today? Do you sense him today? Every time I look at the TV for a few moments, I don't watch a whole lot of the news anymore. It's just too discouraging. But I realize that our job is getting bigger and bigger. We have a very important job in this world. And that is to bring truth to this world. That is to let people see the light of Christmas, the light of Jesus Christ. To understand the Christmas message, to understand what happened some 2,000 years ago in that manger when Jesus Christ came. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what we're going through right now, we all come in contact with people every day. Do I have the courage and the filling of the Holy Spirit to step out and say, Hey, talk to me about your Christmas. What do you got going on? And maybe they'll ask you about yours, and you'll be thankful you did that because let me tell you about my Christmas. If they don't ask you, tell them anyway. Let me tell you about my Christmas and Jesus Christ, my best friend.